Well, good morning. I guess we'll get started. Come on in, shut the door. Welcome to the Community Bible Chapel Adult Bible Class, our elective study hour. For those of you listening in, this is actually a, a little bit of a redo of the class that was done on Sunday morning uh, due to some uh, technical difficulties, but uh, we will try to, those of us who are here, we'll try to recreate what you heard then. Christianity is a religion of rescue. It is designed for the desperate. Just as our awareness of our depravity is essential for holiness, so too a feeling of desperation. Manifested and perpetual brokenness and dependence is the heart of a believer's life in Christ. My objective in these classes is to help you think biblically. Solomon says, as a man thinks, so is he. All permanent change takes place by how a person perceives reality. Our objective as believers is to see things the way God sees them, as they truly are. The only way to accomplish this task of being a true or having a true is by having a true view of life, is, is having it in Scripture. We must be captive to the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, we would indeed be captive to your Word. Lord, as we uh, look at uh, your scripture, as we study things that may be uncomfortable for our minds that are not necessarily receptive to truth, I pray that your spirit would speak to us and that we might uh, submit to your word and that our lives indeed uh, might be made new in you and we might perceive the true reality that is in Jesus Christ. And as his name we pray, amen. Well, again, good morning. We'll get started here. Welcome to week number five of our, of our class series. This morning we are studying the limited atonement. We've, uh, we've looked at it in the first week. We looked at a quick overview, a historical background of where uh, the, oh, the, the issue, the, the, the disagreement of Calvinism and Arminianism came from how it came about. And then in the second week, we looked at the root and the stem of the blossom, the tulip blossom that we look at. For a blossom to fully bloom, it must have a, a solid root and a stem from which to gain nourishment and to, to grow and to shine forth the glory of the bloom. And that's what we looked at. That in the root and the stem, we looked at God's character and his sovereignty. Then we looked at total depravity, uh, the condition of man, Remember that total depravity is not that man or every man is as bad as he can possibly be or that all of our actions are as evil as they can possibly be. But, but what we were saying is that all of our actions are morally ruined. Everything an unbeliever does is sinful. Even for, for a believer, 1 Corinthians 10.31 gives us the standard. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So as believers, how are we doing? Are we carrying out that command? Are we doing everything to the glory of God? Or as Romans 3.23 says, do we fall short of the glory of God and that all men sin? Then last week we looked at uh, the U in the acronym of TULIP. We looked at unconditional election. And what we said was an unconditional election is that God chose for the foundation of the world who would believe. God is free. He chose for the glory of His grace. That's what Ephesians says. Those first, uh, that first whole sentence, that, that paragraph that is one sentence long, that's what Paul says. That before the foundation of the world, that we were chosen to be adopted in Christ, and God saved us for the glory of His grace. One thing I wanted to look at when we looked at unconditional election, we talked about God's uh, foreknowing. We looked at the, the iron chain of Romans 8, uh, 30, and it says that God foreknew, everyone that God foreknew, he predestined. Well, when we speak of foreknowing, when it is between God and men, what we see in the New Testament is it's not that God has an, 
an item of knowledge, but when he speaks of foreknowing, he's actually speaking to a relationship. When God knows men, he does not have knowledge of them, not merely knowledge of them, but he says he knows them and that he has a relationship with them. Uh, In the Old Testament, um, Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. Abraham knew Sarah and she gave birth to the promised son, uh, Isaac. God says, um, he speaks of all the other nations around Israel, but then he says to them, but Israel only have I known. So he's speaking of relationship, and this we see this carried through into the New Testament. So today we come to our topic, the uh, L in the uh, acronym TULIP. We see, come to limited atonement. Limited atonement. It's two words, as you can see. It's not merely one. We have the first word that is L is in limited. The second word is atonement. Uh, it would seem usually that most people where the rub come is from the modifier to that word atonement is in the word limited. But, but first, let's look at the atonement itself. What is the atonement? I think it's important that we look at that and understand that, you know, what the atonement is. Um, before we get to that, though, let's, let's real quick first look at what we are answering. Remember the remonstrance? were the five articles that the remonstrance wrote in disagreement with the Dutch church and the overall teaching of the Protestant church, which was known as Calvinism or uh, taught by John Calvin out in Geneva. But they put forward item number two, said this, unlimited atonement. Christ died for all men and for every man, making all mankind savable. Christ's atonement becomes effective only in those who believe. Only believers are saved. Now, the issue here is that the atonement is, has the, is the making of all mankind savable. The issue is, is that although God makes us savable, ultimately it is the choice or the free choice of men to believe that applies that atonement to him. Man believes and the atonement is applied to him. That's what the Arminian says and that's what we are answering that we or disagreeing with that statement that man believes, then the benefits of the atonement apply to him. So what is the atonement? The atonement is the work of God in Christ by which, through his obedient life and his substitutionary death on the cross, Christ appeased, he satisfied, he, he, he put away or he absorbed the wrath, the holy wrath of God against us. And he won for us all the benefits of salvation. So what we see there is his substitutionary death appeased the wrath of God. His obedient life, along with that death, won for us all the benefits of salvation. So Christ's death took the judgment of us. And then the benefits of salvation are that and also our walk going forward where we... uh, we have the Holy Spirit within us, and we're able to walk to the glory of God. Definition of the atonement. Well, why an atonement? We know what it is. Why must we have an atonement? Well, Hebrews 9.22 says that indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So we see the Hebrews quoting back from the Old Testament that it was necessary that blood be shed to cover the sin of the one who brought the sacrifice. That speaks back to the Old Covenant, the myriad of sacrifices that the Hebrew people would bring. And there was always a continual sacrifice, a continual flow of blood for the forgiveness of the people's sins. So there must have been atonement for sin. We also see in Romans 3... This, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to receive by faith. Okay, now, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
it, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So we see that the, the atonement was necessary for two things. So that God must be just in that he had passed over all the sins of former time up into the cross. He passed them over. He had not judged man. So he had to come and Christ had to die to show that God was just. The pouring out of wrath on Christ with the demonstration was how much God hated sin. And not only was it to that he might be just, but it was also so that he might be the justifier, the one that made a right those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So we see a twofold requirement. It is to justify the character of God in his passing over of sin and to justify and to appease the wrath of God for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So, that's the atonement. But why limited? So the question we come to is, why? Why limited as a word to modify the word atonement? First, both the Arminian and the Calvinist limit the atonement. Those that say they believe in an unlimited atonement really do limit it. Both limit the atonement. The Arminian limits the effectiveness of the atonement. The atonement does not actually save anyone, is what the Arminian says, but merely makes salvation possible. It does not purchase all the promises of salvation, the price of the penalty, and the grace required to draw us to salvation. The Arminian says is that Christ's death makes all men savable. Now, the Calvinist affirms that the atonement purchased everything needed for salvation, including the grace and the faith to believe for salvation. It paid the penalty, and it also purchased the grace and the faith needed for salvation. Therefore, we limit the full blessing of the atonement to the elect and those that are drawn by God as he brings them to faith. You see, both the Arminian and the Calvinist limit the atonement. Okay, the, the, Armi the Arminian is unlimited in its application to all men, but limits what the atonement actually does because it's dependent upon man exercising his faith. The Calvinist says no. We, we limit the atonement to a particular people, God's unconditionally chosen people, but that it is unlimited in that everything Everything that the atonement was designed to do, it does. It purchases the faith and the grace to believe, and from that belief, salvation comes through it, and then we, the Christ absorbs the wrath of God, and then we enjoy all the promises that go with it. All that is purchased by the atonement. That is the argument. The Calvinist says that everything, everything is purchased by God in the atonement. Both the Armenian and the Calvinist can affirm John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes, whosoever believes may be saved. And we believe that. Whosoever believes may be saved. The issue is whosoever will. And the issue is the will. And the Calvinist says that God does everything required to enable that will, to make that will alive, to believe. Arminian says that when the man wills, and believes, then he enjoys the benefits of salvation. Again, we're getting back to the condition of man. It goes all the way back to the depravity, the total depravity of man, the condition that he finds himself in. So, Last week, we saw that God unconditionally elects the, unto salvation a specific group of people. In John 10, Jesus speaks a specific sheep who the Father gives him. 
No one can come to Jesus unless Jesus draws them. John 15 says, we did not choose him, he chose us. Okay? God unconditionally chose. God draws us. He did the work and he chose us. That's what we're saying in the unconditional election and in that electing, the atonement is applied to us. Yes, First Timothy 4.10 says, uh, it speaks of, let's go there for a minute. Let's go to First Timothy 4.10 and let's read that. First Timothy 4.10. For to this end we toil and strive. Okay, a life of Christ, living for a life of Christ. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We, as a Calvinist, we hear that. God saves the world in that sense. He does not immediately exterminate the rebel sinner. He causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes to shun, to shine, the faces of them all. There are people today that will enjoy their family. They will, they will enjoy the benefits of the salvation that God is withholding his wrath from the world to redeem for himself a people. So in that sense, his salvation is of benefit or his, his atonement, his the cross is of benefit to all people. But we agree, but we say and we argue that Jesus' death actually saves his people, especially to those who believe, those God elected before the foundation of the world and who believe. That's what First Timothy said, that there is a special electing, a special application of atonement for those who believe and those who are chosen by God. So, Again, the term. So why limited? Why the term limited? Maybe better would be a, a different term, or a better term would be a particular atonement, a, 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 a particular atonement, a chosen atonement for a particular people. We could also say that it is a definite atonement and that it is an atonement for a definite group of people. In the atonement, we are saying Jesus actually saves. And let's say it again, in the atonement, Jesus actually saves. He does not merely make it a possibility. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Not merely to make it possible to save his people from their sins, or merely possible to seek them and then that they might be saved, but no, he came to seek and to save. He came to save his people from their sins. Paul says it this way in his first letter to Timothy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul again says it this way to Titus, chapter 2, verse 14. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And again, we see the adamant, definite statement of what the death of Christ was designed and intended to do, to redeem from lawlessness a people, to purify for Jesus Christ a people, and these people to be for his own possession and to be zealous for good works. There was a definite purpose in the atonement. Jesus Christ's death reconciled us, made us right before God. If for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Again, while we were enemies, we were reconciled. 
That's the argument we're making that the atonement has effect on a particular people chosen. We were reconciled while we were enemies to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Ephesians chapter 2, reading uh, verses 15 and 16. Here's what Paul says, the way Paul says it this way. He died, Jesus Christ died, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Thereby, it's the cross that reconciled the Jew and the Gentile to God. It wasn't the cross that made it possible so that if they believe, they might be saved. But the cross itself did the reconciling. Christ's death justified us. Uh, Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, his blood, his death, justified us. Since we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So again, his blood actually justified us. Didn't just make it possible, it justified us, his people. Hebrews 9, verse 12 says it this way. He, this is Jesus Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, having obtained an eternal redemption. Again, look at this. Having obtained... He redeemed us. When Christ entered the real Holy of Holies, he did so by his own blood, the atonement. And the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews said this, at that time, he obtained our eternal redemption. He did not obtain its possibility. He obtained our redemption. A particular people for him. Well, not only do we see that Christ's death reconciled us, justified us, redeemed us, we see that uh, his death sanctify us. Okay, it set us apart. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Paul said in Ephesians, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the blood. Again, Christ gave himself up that he might sanctify her. He's not waiting on belief. He's not waiting on man's choice. When he died, he did it. And he loves us in the same way. He loved, Christ loves us in the same way as we husbands should love our wives. Okay? Christ's death is substitutionary. It was in our place okay so if it was in the place of everyone then these this would apply but it, no we're arguing that it is in the place of particular people first peter peter says it this way in his letter uh chapter 3 verse 18 for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but he was made alive in the spirit. Again, he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, us, for the purpose of bringing us to God. Again, not to make it a possibility, but to actually do it. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, for our sake, he made him... Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
He was made our sin so that in him we might be made righteousness. Again, his death, the atonement, was not merely a good example. He died in our place. Again, another argument we're making, or we can make, is that Christ's death satisfied the covenant made in eternity past between the Father and the Son. John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, again, before eternity passed, and I lay down my life for the sheep, And then Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. I have authority to lay it, my life, down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. When? Again, before the ages passed, in that eternal covenant before the Father and the Son, to give the Son a people and the Son to buy and redeem that people. It's a covenant between the Father and the Son. And that's what the atonement satisfies. Later on in John 10, he says this way, If you are the Christ, tell us, the Pharisees said to Jesus. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Again, that eternal covenant, in the eternal covenant, the Father gave to Jesus sheep. Sheep from the fold of Israel, sheep from the world. And Jesus said, those sheep hear my voice. We know him, we follow him, and he gives us eternal life. We're his sheep that he gives us eternal life. He doesn't give us eternal life when we become his sheep, but we are his sheep and he gives us eternal life. That's to order. John 17, the high priestly prayer. Okay? The hour has come. Jesus said, glorify your son. Okay? I have, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Who did he give to Jesus out of the world? Every single man, woman, and child ever lived and his death was going to be for them? No. He gave his son out of the world of people. And Jesus said, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. So there is a difference between the world and those who have been given to Jesus by the Father from eternity past. Now, one of them has been lost because the son of destruction, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. And he says this, I do not ask for these, all, these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe me through their word. That's us, folks. That's us. That's us, and it's those that have heard the word of God written in the scriptures the last 2,000 years and who will hear it tomorrow and the next day until Jesus comes. That's who Jesus is praying for. He is praying for specifically for us. And we know that Jesus' prayers are always answered. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that, so that the love with which you loved me before the foundations of the world may be in them and I in them. Again, that's Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, that his death was to satisfy the eternal covenant, the agreement between the Father and Son before the foundations of the world of the world. So, what about a general or an unlimited atonement? How Jesus died for all and yet a particular people. So how do we deal with the passage of Scripture that speak of Christ dying for all men? Did Jesus die for every single human that has ever lived in the exact same way? We're arguing that he did not, okay? But, but that is the argument that we must answer. Did Jesus obtain everything we just looked at 
for every single person, every single human being. Okay? If so, the promises that we just looked at, the covenant between the Father and Son we just looked at, was wasted. Or those promises weren't really dependent upon Christ's work. But ultimately, they would have been dependent upon man's ability or willingness to respond. Okay? That's the argument. If he died for every single man in every single way, well, obviously, those promises, that covenant's not coming true because there are people going to hell today, and they've gone to hell, and they will go to hell. There are people that are, that are separated from God for all eternity. So if his death is meant for those people, then these promises are not coming true. But we're arguing that every one of his promises is coming to. Why? Because his death was applied to a particular people, his people whom he loved. Look around. If Jesus' death, the atonement, was purposed equally for every single human, then his death did not accomplish what Jesus intended. And he with the Father, with the Father, covenanted. So, let's look at some of the universal texts. We are only going to briefly name them today. We can, uh, really what I can do is I can go back and look at them, uh, we can look at them later here at the, at the end of the series, but specifically we see two types of text. We, spe- we see the text where Christ died for the world, is what people say. That's the argument. John 3.16 is the classic argument there for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son right that's the one we think of um, tell you what I want to do is I want to look at John 2 2 John 2 2 says uh, this way let's go there for a minute first John 2 2 we'll be looking at it a little bit in a little bit so let's read it. he Jesus is our propiti- is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, we're argue, we are arguing that world doesn't mean every single individual throughout history. We would have to answer that. We also have the text where it says that Christ died for all. Uh, Romans 5.18 would be one of those. Uh, let's go there real quick. I'll read that, and we'll also look at Hebrews 2.9. Romans 5.18. Romans 5.18. Let's read that. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. We would have to answer that. And again, we would answer that when it says all. It's not speaking of every single individual, but it's all in context. means all those for whom he died. Uh, we see that in this example, we can look down below, and immediately he starts about the obedience being applied to many. Again, it doesn't say all, it's just being applied to many. We can, we can look at that later. Hebrews 2.9 uh, uses all this way. Hebrews 2, verse 9. Hebrews 2, verse 9. Hebrews 2 and verse 9. Now, let's see here. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might might taste death for everyone. Well, everyone must mean everyone. must mean all people. Well, we would argue... Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory. Well, we've gone from everyone to many sons. So our argument would be that it's everyone for whom he died. It's everyone for whom the many sons is speaking about. Again, the two classifications or texts are dealing with world or all. We're saying world is in Jew and Gentile, all types, all nations, all tongues. He died for them so that people out of them might come to Christ. Or we're dealing with the, the term all in the sense of, again, 
um, all for whom he died are all types. So those are the two classifications that we're arguing for. The world, not merely Jews, but Gentile, all, in context, usually understood as all kinds or, or many, okay? Or we could say that 1 Timothy 4.10, God, the Savior of the world, but especially the Savior for those who believe. So again, we're arguing routed that he died a special way for his children, those who will believe. Tell you what, not, not the cherry pick. Let's, let's look at one in, in particular right now. Let's look at uh, 1 John uh, 2, 2. Oh, here, the next slide shows that there are a whole bunch of texts that speak to a limited or a definite uh, group of people. We won't take time to read these right now. We've already gone through some of those. Matthew 4, 121, 2028. If you look at your handout, you can see the rest of Romans 8, 32 through 34, Hebrews 2, Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 3. It's speaking of a very specific people. Chapter 9, we just looked at having obtained eternal redemption for, for uh, his people. And there's, there are many texts that speak to uh, the particular atonement. And, and my argument is, ultimately, is we need to answer the question of the universal text in light of the particular text. What we don't want to do is go to uh, the unlimited text and say, well, well how, how does that affect everything else? Okay, it goes the other way. We, see the, we, go, we work from the specific to the general, not the general to the specific. Let's look at 1 John 2, 2, and then put your finger there and turn to uh, well, let's see, turn to John eleven fifty one and 52, okay? Now, let's look at these two verses. We're going to put them up side by side. Uh, reading in John 11, Jesus would die for... Okay, this is where uh, Caiaphas is making a prophecy. He was making a prophecy as a high priest of that year. And he said this, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Okay, we see that, and we, we read that in John, and we kind of just read it and we go on. We think it's, it's just kind of a forepicture of the, the death of Jesus to come, that they give them an excuse for uh, getting him to the cross. But when we come to 1 John 2, 2, we read this verse. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, when we're reading that, we, we stop. We say, well, well, that's interesting. If propitiation means the satisfying of God's wrath for the sins committed, well, not just for mine, but also for the, for the sins of every single individual, well, what does that mean? Did Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for every single individual. That's what the whole world means. And so, I add, well, so if propitiation means propitiation, what we understand to mean, then that means that the whole world won't be judged because you, you see the, the conundrum we bump into if we really think about what that word propitiation means. But when we read this and we, we think back to the Gospel of John, same writer, same writer separated only by time, I think John was thinking of the verse in John 11, 52. Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. I put them up side by side. Let's look at this. We're going to see five, uh, five parallels between these two verses. We see in John 11, or we see in 1 John 2, 2, that Jesus, he is the propitiation. Okay? John 11, 51, 52. We see that Jesus would die. We see that in 1 John. We see that he is a propitiation for our sins. Caiaphas said that Jesus would die for the nation, for a specific, for an elect people of God, as they understood it. And then John goes on in, in his letter, 1 John, and not for ours only, and not for ours only, not for the people of God, only those of us in this, this group that he's writing to, not for them, ours only. Caiaphas, 
prophesies this. And for and not for the nation only. And not for the nation only. Okay, not for the nation of Israel only. John says in his letter, but also for the sins. Caiaphas says, but also to gather into one. 1 John says this, but also for the sins of the whole world. And Caiaphas says, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. See, I, I think John was thinking back to this prophecy of Caiaphas. And I think it's easy to understand this verse in John 2, 2, if we think back to John 11, 51 through 52. My aim here is not to say that this answers all the questions of all the different texts, but what I'm saying is, I think we can look in context, or we can look in the context of Scripture, and we can and we can answer these problem universal texts that are always thrown out, and we can answer them with good answers from by looking at the context of Scripture. The atonement is definite. Let's look at also uh, at the iron, the unbreakable chain. Romans 8, 32-34 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So here's the promise, okay? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the promise. No matter what, no matter how bad, when things just... (laughs) When things go bad, okay? This is the promise we hang to. That God, he did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us. And if he... If he loved us that much, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Well, we ask, well, then what are all things we talk about? What are all things? Is it health? Is it wealth? Well, the obvious answer to that is no, because there are people here today who are sick. There are those who are not wealthy beyond their wildest imagination. What, so what are the all things that God will give us because he did not spare his own son. What, what are the grounds of that promise? Well, I say we go right back up before in the verses before that. And we can see the things <clears throat> that God gave his people. Romans 8, 20 through 30. Who foreknew us, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified the unbreakable chain. If any one of those five things dropped out, the foreknowing, the predestining, the calling, the justifying, the glorifying, if any one of those things break, if that link falls out of that chain, then that promise in 832 goes away. So my argument is that the atonement is for a definite people because he didn't spare his own son. The atonement the death of his son where God gave him up for us was for us to purchase us all things. And what were these all things? It was the foreknowing, the relationship that caused us to be predestined, the predestining that caused us to be called, the calling that caused us to be justified, and the justified that caused us to be glorified and will ultimately glorify in the presence of God. Okay? The atonement bought that. So here's my final argument for the atonement being a particular atonement. And I think we see it in what we celebrate every week here in our church. Every week we celebrate, what do we call it in here? Call it the Lord's Supper? Call it communion? What do we do? What do we celebrate in that? We celebrate the the death of Christ. We celebrate the shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body. All right? We're celebrating the death of Christ. We say, and what he did for us on the cross. That's what we're remembering. In other words, we are remembering each and every week the new covenant. 
We are new covenant believers, and that is what we remember. And we do it until he comes again. All right, every week we celebrate the new covenant. And I'm saying that's grounds, that's an argument for a particular and limited atonement. What was the purchase price of the covenant? What sealed the covenant? Okay, that's different. What sealed this new covenant that we celebrate? Well, let's go to some of the favorite passages we quote every week. For this is my blood of the covenant. This is Jesus and the Passover supper, the, the, the night before his betrayed. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, right? Blood of the covenant. My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, the blood that will purchase for many the forgiveness of sins. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 11 this way, right? In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, it wasn't the little cup of wine he was holding was a new covenant, but it was the blood that that cup represent. That cup represented the new covenant that was in, that was sealed, that was assured in that death of Christ. And we're to remember that new covenant as often as we drink it in remembrance of Christ. Okay? The new covenant sealed by the atonement is all about God doing an effective, sure, promised, and confirmed work. Okay? Where do we see the new covenant? Where do we see the, that new covenant spoken of prior to these verses here in the New Testament? Well, we know where, where we see them. We go back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. Here's God speaking. Israel's gone astray and they're out of the land. And things look hopeless. And God comes and he says this. But this is the covenant. The people had been unfaithful. They had not kept the covenant. They had not kept the law, the old covenant that God had given them. Right? So if you break my law, I'm going to. If you keep my law, I'm going to give you children. I'm going to cause rain to fall and your crops to grow. And, and you're going to have relationship with God, an intimate relationship with God. And I will, you will be my people. I will be your God. That was the old covenant. But the people couldn't keep it. And God said, he, and God said, you won't keep it. But then God comes and says this. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after the days where they've been uh, put out to pasture into foreign lands, so to speak. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's why in Matthew 26, uh, you'll see a cross-reference back to this passage, right? Jesus, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Jeremiah says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sins no more. And again, in this covenant, what do we see? Do we see Israel acting? Do we see Israel as a part, a participant in this covenant? Do you see Israel as a recipient of this covenant? God says, I will make the house of Israel. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall all know me. I will forgive. I will remember their sins no more. Again, we see all God acting in the new covenant. It's all about God. It's not about his people in that sense. Ezekiel 36, speaking of the new covenant, says it this way. He says to Israel, I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all uncleanness. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you this new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to be obey my rules. Again, we see God working here. He says, I will take you from the nations. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you and purify you from uncleanness. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove that heart of stone. I will give you that heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And I will cause you to be careful to obey all my rules. Again, we, we don't see Israel responding. We see God doing all the work in the new covenant. And this is the covenant that Jesus said his blood sealed. Okay? So not only did we see his blood satisfying the wrath of God, taking our punishment on the cross, yes, it did that. But his blood also purchased for us all the blessings, all the promises, all the grace, and the faith necessary to believe so that we will enjoy the new covenant. His death was specific and particular for his people. Here's what he says in Revelation 5, 9. What did this new covenant do? It bought for him a people. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, by the atonement, you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The atonement of Christ is definite. It is sure. It is promised. And it is confirmed. It is a sure thing. It does not make a mere possibility contingent upon man's fickle faith and his fickle will. No, the atonement accomplishes the work of Christ and it purchases for him a people. And we are blessed to be a part of that. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to look at the wonderful work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I am, I am humbled. And Lord, I, I pray that we all would be humbled, that you, in the counsel of your will before the foundations of the world, in your mercy, in your goodness, you chose us, not because of anything within ourselves. Lord, we, we would have stood justly condemned along with every other human being. For we were rebels, Against you, we were haters of what was good. We hated the dark. We hated the light. We loved the dark. But you chose us. Lord, you chose to have a relationship with us. You predestined us and you called us and you justified us and glorified us. Lord, your atonement was effective and designed to bring us to you. Lord, we bless you your name and we ask your blessing in the week to come. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.